Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children, and anarchists of all ages, welcome to the Dark Lord Reapers United States of Anarchy podcast. Who am I? Dark Lord himself. I am Mary King, reading unapologetic truth about real topics and real situations. If you're looking for celebrity gossip, this is not the podcast for you. Seek that elsewhere. This is for real topics, for real people about real situations and real facts. Occasionally we make jokes here. Occasionally we'll do things that are a little fun. And we also use this podcast for education. If you don't like what I have to say, two words, don't listen. And while you're at it, boycott this podcast. Boycott my social media. Boycott anything that has my name attached to it. It'll make your life a lot easier and my life a lot easier. So... The month of February has a lot of significance to me and a lot of people like me. This is Black History Month, so why not do an episode dedicated to Black History? And not the typical Black History where we talk about the people that are celebrated consistently. Let's talk about the people that don't necessarily get a lot of praise, but should. This episode is dedicated to unsung heroes of Black History. We're going to be talking about the people should be in history books, but really aren't. So get your popcorn, get out a pen and piece of paper. You might want to run, might want to start taking notes, writing these names down, because I'm going to give you some hardcore facts that you may or may not already know. This this episode is specifically for people who want to be educated, not indoctrinated, and also for the people who have been miseducated. So let's enjoy. And we're back, so we are talking black history, the unsung heroes of black history. Basically, I'm doing this episode to give credit to the heroes of black history that don't get much credit. So, mainstream society likes to cram the civil rights history down our, mo- our throats, but they don't talk much about the man who basically gave birth to the civil rights movement. If you're going to mention Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, you have to mention this man, the man who single-handedly gave birth to the civil rights movement. I'm talking about the late, great, honorable Marcus Garvey. Most people don't know a lot about him. Well, I'm going to give you some, not random, but actual facts about him. Basically, Marcus Garvey was born August 17, 1888 in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. Marcus Garvey was one of 11 children born to his parents, Marcus Garvey Sr. and Sarah Jane Richards. His father was a stonemason, but his father had a very big library and he encouraged all his children to self-educate themselves. Marcus Garvey, when he was 14, he attended school but dropped out to seek apprenticeship at a print shop. He later first experienced racism in his grade school where he had white teachers. While working at the print shop, he became involved in the union labor print tradesmen in Kingsman, in Kingston, Jamaica, which is the capital of the island. He, his, his work there would set, would set the stage for his activism later on in life. He spent time in Central America where he had relatives before moving to London in 1912. While in Britain, he attended the University of London 
Burby College, where he studied law and philosophy. He also worked for a Pan-Africanism newspaper, which led, which led debates at Speaker's Cornell, Hyde Park, London, a famous spot in the city for public discourse even today. So that was his early life. So let's talk about while he was in London, he started talking to one of our well-known leaders, Booker T. Washington, about Pan-African, Pan-Africanism, which led him to start the Back to Africa movement, where he basically was saying, you know what? They don't want us here. We're not going to get a fair shake. Let's go back to Africa. Let's go back to the motherland and build what's ours. See, the thing about it is, Marcus Garvey grew up in an environment where he wasn't a black kid. He wasn't a Negro kid. He was just a Negro. He didn't have to bow and scrape to people because of the color of his skin. He grew up in, in a society where you're, expect where you're respected as a human being, as a man. And as a man, once you stand on your own two feet, the biggest problems in Jamaica are classism and colorism, which are the cousins of racism. But we'll talk about that another time. So when he first started preaching his, bra his Back to Africa movement, not everybody was feeling him. A few of our well-known leaders weren't feeling him, like W.E.B. Du Bois. But he still got rapid support. He even started his own newspaper, considering that he worked at a printing press, so it made perfect sense for him to do that. Let me give you the name of his printing press. His, his um, the Black Star Line. He started that to fund the Black, the Back to Africa movement. A lot of people were running, was running that down. My mother even told told me that there were people in Jamaica that were selling their property to get a part of the Back to Africa movement, but. They didn't have to do that, but that's how strong the movement was. And my mom was a little kid during the 1950s and 60s, so that should tell you. And he started this movement in the 1920s. Think about that. So, like every movement that is for change and the betterment of people, it was met with resistance. And who better to come at him than that lovable, little bigot that had federal authority, J. Edgar Hoover. Because of Marcus, Garvey's, Marcus Garvey's outspoken nature and activism towards black nationalism, Gar Marcus Garvey became J. Edgar Hoover's biggest target. J. Edgar Hoover worked at the Bureau of Investigations, the BOI the precursor to what we know today as the Federal Bureau of Investigations. That's the agency that J. Edgar Hoover funded. He, funded. he founded this organization for the sole purpose of taking down one person, which was Marcus Garvey. He had Marcus Garvey labeled as a notorious Negro agitator. In layman's terms, a troublemaker to the establishment. Now, for you young people that may hear this, if you were labeled back then as a notorious Negro agitator, it's a badge of honor and it's a bullseye on your back. J. 
Just be prepared for your world to be turned upside down once that name is put on you. But I digress, moving on. He had Marcus Garvey, Marcus Garvey charged with mail fraud in connection with a brochure from the Black Star Line that included a photo of a ship before the company actually had a vessel in its fleet. Yeah, so he basically had Marcus Garvey convicted before he was he, he even did anything. Marcus um, Jacob Hoover, sorry, even went as far. This is how desperate he went. He was had no choice but to hire his first his first black federal agent. That's how desperate Jacob Hoover was, and it's a tactic that he would use for generations to come to infiltrate many of organizations that were involved in the civil rights movement, which includes the Black Panther Party for Central for Self-Defense, which I will talk about later on in this episode. After the controversial trial, because Garvey did go to trial, he was found guilty of all the charges and sentenced to the maximum of five years in prison. Garvey blamed his Jew blamed a Jewish judge and the Jewish jurors for his conviction saying that they sought retribution against him because he agreed to meet with the Grand Wizard of the KKK several months prior to the trial. Garvey believed, believed that he and the KKK shared a similar view on segregation given that he sought a separation, a separate state for African Americans. Whew. Now I get it, eventually you gotta meet with your opposition, but at the end of the day, if you're building something, you have to make, you have to make, you have to think and choose. I'm not saying that he was wrong for wanting to meet with the Grand Wizard, but I'm not saying, at, but what I'm saying is at the time, he should have waited till his movement was completely unstoppable. But I digress. He still has my respect because he did what he did. But let me remove my opinion. Let me give you guys some more facts about him. When he was first incarcerated, he sent out a message that reverberates this very day. And his message reads, After my enemies are satisfied in life or death, I shall come back to you to serve even as, I've, even as I have served before. In life, I'll be the same. In death, I shall be a terror to the foes of the Negro liberty, of Negro liberty. If death has power, then count on me in death to be the same Marcus Garvey I would like to be. If I may come in an earthquake or a cyclone or a plague or pestilence or as God would have me, then be assured that I shall... I shall never desert you, and I shall make your enemies triumph over you. When Marcus Garvey was released from prison, he was, he was immediately deported to Jamaica. He traveled to Geneva, Switzerland, to speak to the League of Nations on the issues of race and worldwide abuse of the people of color. A few months later, he returned to Jamaica, where he established the People Political Party. Triple P, that nation's first modern, that was the nation's first modern political organization. It's a platform that focused on the workers' rights and the poor. 
unfortunately, unfortunately, Marcus Garvey at the age of 52, he died on June 10th, 1940 from complications from two strokes due to the World War II travel restrictions, he couldn't see a doctor. He was originally buried in St. Mary's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green, London, but on November 13, 1960, his body was exhumed and returned to Jamaica. What makes Marcus Garvey an unsung hero of black history and the civil rights movement? Because he gave birth to it. Had it not been for him standing up and speaking his mind, we probably would never have people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, two of our most outspoken leaders. When we come back, I'll be talking about another one of our heroes that should be getting praise, but not the person you think and not for the reasons you think. And we're back, so we are talking the unsung heroes of black history. People that don't really get praise, but should get praise. The next man I'm going to talk about is a man that every athlete, particularly boxer, should know. He was the very first black heavyweight champion in history. In fact, his title reign lasted an astounding, impressive 13 years. I'm talking about Jack Johnson, the notorious Jack. He was born March 31st, 1878. He died June 10th, 1946 in a car crash. One of his nicknames was the Gavelstone Giant. He was at the in height. He was a boxer at the height of the Jim Crow era. You know, separate but equal. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on in this episode. His reputation preceded him with his list of knockouts. In fact, a law was passed specifically to target him. The Mann Act, which the Mann Act basically says you cannot transport a woman from one state to another to do illicit things. Because, believe it or not, Jack Johnson openly, during the Jim Crow era, had relationships, romantic relationships with white women. That was a no-no. In fact, in some places, that would have got him killed. But because it was Jack Johnson and the fact that people were so afraid of him, nobody challenged him in that regard. He had a thing for cars. Let's get into stuff that most people don't know about Jack Johnson. Most people will talk about most people, when they talk about him negatively, they want to say he's a woman beater and all that. But that was never true. They were just allegations. But it was never proven in a court of law. But here's what most people don't know. He was an inventor. He invented the monkey wrench. An invention that mechanics, plumbers, and basically construction men use to this very day. Originally, it was just called the wrench. But during the Jim Crow era... They added the term monkey to it because to defame it. He got in the ring during an era where a lot of white boxers felt that it was beneath them to fight a black boxer. 
but that wasn't true. The truth of the matter is, they were afraid to fight black boxers, particularly Jack Johnson. For the simple fact, one of his fights, his opponents, he beat that man so bad, his teeth were stuck in his gloves when he was done with him. Ooh. But this was the one thing that he did so that basically set the precedence for how he would be treated for the remainder of his career. There was another boxer of his time period that retired undefeated. The undisputed champion, the Cinderella man, Jim Jeffries. They made a movie about him. Russell Crowe played him. It got to the point in Jack Johnson's career after he became champion that they just got anybody from anywhere that was willing to climb into the ring with him just to fight him. A lot of white propagandists in the newspapers were calling for the great white hope as they called him, Jim Jeffries. They finally fought, but they did it in Las Vegas, neutral territory. This is why a lot of major big fights happened in Las Vegas. Jack Johnson started the trend and it has gone on and it's continued tradition has continued since then the fight went on the fight went to a decision no contest but that's not what happened jack johnson beat the snot out of jim jeffries but people ran into the ring pulling jack johnson away from jeff jeffries yelling don't let the nigger knock him out don't let the nigger knock him out because they wouldn't be able to stand the shame of knowing that their undisputed champion lost to a black man But here's something else that most people don't know. Jack Johnson was the precursor to fighters like Floyd Mayweather, the Iceman, Sonny Liston, and of course, the greatest, Muhammad Ali. The reason why he's one of our unsung heroes, because he went up against a system that told him it was beneath that his opposition, his uh, fellow competitors, it was beneath for it was beneath them to face him because he was inferior. But yet he proved the world wrong, and he did it with a smile. That's what they hated about Jack Johnson more than anything else. No matter what they said about him or said to him, he always smiled. He handled every indignity that they threw at him, all the disrespect in the newspapers, in the media. He handled it with such class because he knew at the end of the day, none of them had the guts to go toe to toe with him. He invented the term bob and weave, the same term, the same technique that is used by boxers today, which is why every boxer owes him respect. Every boxer from Wilder to Tyson, De La Hoya, and the list goes on. Everything they do is an echo of Jack Johnson. So to that, Mr. Jack Johnson, I salute you. You are one of our unsung heroes. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about another hero that is a little bit of this era, but did something that most people don't know he deserves credit for. And we're back. So we are talking about the unsung heroes of black history. Now, I'm going to mention, I'm going to discuss a man that, if you grew up in the early 80s, 
early, sorry, not early 80s, early 90s up into this very day. He made your summers, and the child, your childhood in the summers, very special. The man I'm talking about's name is Lonnie Johnson. Probably don't know who he is, but he's very important if you're a 90s kid. He was the man that invented the super soaker. You heard it. The super soaker, it was a black man. Ring, ring. But here's the thing. He just now got recognition for it. In fact, the company, the company of Super Soaker, Super Soaker, just paid him over a million dollars in restitution because of the patent dispute. But that's not all that we need to know about Mr. Johnson. He also worked for Oak, for Oak Ridge National Laboratory, the Air Force, and the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But his career didn't start there. It started in high school when he built a robot and won regional science fair in the University of Alabama. So this is something that he's been doing since he was a kid in the early 80s. And this man single-handedly, unknowing, unknowingly brought joy to my childhood and many other people's childhood into adulthood for years to come. He originally wanted to put the super, make the super soaker himself, but at the time, it cost $200,000 to manufacture it here in America, and he didn't have it. He saw the market growing. He saw the market growing, basically, with the other company, Nerf. You know, it's Nerf or nothing. He presented he presented it, his idea, at a toy fair. And they invited him to their headquarters in, in Philadelphia. And things supposedly went well, but they stole his idea. But now he's being recognized for it. So, Mr. Lonnie Johnson, you are one of our unsung heroes. Because you showed that you don't necessarily have to bounce a ball or throw a football, or be an athlete to be special. You used your mind to not only help the world, but bring, a jo- but bring joy to many children all over the world, and make our summers even that much special. So that, sir, you are one of Black History's unsung heroes. When we come back, we're going to talk about a specific group that should be in our history books, but they're not. And we're back, so we are talking the unsung heroes of black history. Now, there was one specific group that was basically one of the unsung heroes of black history, but became not only a cultural icon, but a cultural movement that was spawned as a result of the remnants of the civil rights movement. I'm talking about none other than those beret-wearing, black leather jacket, black leather jacket-wearing afros, fist held high, the Black Panther Party from Self-Defense, founded in 1966. Two guys came together, one Bobby Seale and one Huey P. Newton. Both of them were very active in their communities at their junior college where they met. They quickly established 45 chapters 
across America at the peak, at their peak, they sold over 250 papers every week. Opinion polls daily showed that the Panthers had 90% support amongst blacks in major series. cities. Their impact on black America can be measured by the response they got from the state. Good old J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, the same guy that I mentioned earlier who went after our illustrious Marcus Gari, named them the number one threat to internal security of the United States. Ooh. Like I said earlier, if you caught his ire, if you caught the ire of J. Edgar Hoover, it was both a gift and a curse because it actually means that you were making a difference, but at the same time, you had a bullseye on your back and you had to take everything that came with it, baby. The civil rights movement took basically is what spawned the Black Panthers. Malcolm X, who basically inspired both Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton, he saw the limitations of the Muslim movement and Martin Luther King's strategy of nonviolence. Malcolm X saw the need to embrace it, which was his message by any means necessary. It was against this background of upheaving that the Black Panther Party was created. The Panthers took on a more revolutionary philosophy and militant stance of, Mal of Malcolm X. They were determined that through Malcolm X had been cut down, they would make his ideals come alive. Now, here's a few things that you may not know about the Black Panther Party. These were the type of things that they were facing back then. During the 1960s, between the years of 1966 and 54, and 1954, 32% 30, of black people were living below the poverty level in 1966. 71% of poor living, of the poor living in the metropolitan areas were blacks. By 1968, two-thirds of the black populations was living in what we know as the ghetto. The Panthers saw this as a problem and decided to not only fight for desegregation, but to address fundamental economic problems that was being faced in the community. They started programs that we enjoy today, like WIC, Women and Child, which provides nutrition foods which is a part of the Food Stamp Public Assistance Program. They don't really get much credit for that, but they actually did it. And here's another hypocrisy that most people don't know. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense used to carry guns openly because California was an open carry state. It is. It was an open carry state, but I really don't know if it is. What? It still is. One day, spontaneously, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton and some of the Panther members walked in on a meeting of Congress to observe. And carrying their guns with their black berets and leather jackets, they thought that they were about to be killed. So that's where the term black militant came from. Black militants or black extremists. That's where that term came from because they used 
the Black Panthers as the poster child to push that. So within a week, they passed new gun laws, which made sure that the Black Panthers lost the right to carry their guns publicly. But it was too little, too late. They got the world's attention, disciplined black men with guns. Overnight, they made black something to be cool, something to be emulated. All of a sudden, black was no longer dirty. Black was no longer looked down upon. Black was style, it was class, it was pop culture. Afros became a fashion statement instead of something to be shamed about. And when you saw those black women that were part of the revolution, a part of the Black Panther Party, they weren't a part of it as subservience or support. They were equal members. And when you saw those women, it was like, hmm, I got to get me one of those. In fact, one of those women who was a member of the Black Panther Party for self-defense, two of them are pop icons for different reasons. One of them grew to be be a funk legend. That's right, I'm talking about Miss Shaka Khan. She was a Black Panther, believe it or not. Here's another, another woman who gave, per- who gave birth to one of the greatest rappers of our generation, Tupac Shakur. His mother was a member of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. But this is the reason why I look at them as unsung hero of black history. They single-handedly turned the establishment on its head. They single-handedly made the phrase power to the people. And it became something, and it became a battle cry. Before we had I can't breathe, before we had fuck the police, you raised your fist in solidarity and said power to the people. Even Olympic athletes were raising a Black Panther fist. If people remember that, those clips, that iconic clip, people will never forget it. But J. Edgar Hoover, he didn't like that at all. He made it his solemn mission to neutralize the Black Panther Party for for self-defense. And boy... He rained down a shit storm, excuse my language, he rains down a storm on them, the likes in which you've never seen. In fact, he made it his personal mission to kill off the leadership of the Black Panther Party for self-defense. In fact, one of their youngest leaders and most charismatic leaders, um, Fred Hamilton, who gave the infamous speech the revolution will not be televised. He's probably one of the most infamous assassination assassinations within the Black Panther leadership. In fact, once again, the FBI used the tactic of hiring black agents to infiltrate these movements. They did that with Fred Hammond and gave up where he was living and shot him to death and then told the news reporters he was in a shootout. But Fred Hampton was asleep when they killed him. In fact, there was only one bullet that was going outward when they did an independent autopsy and forensics. But the Black Panther Party will always be a part of not just black history, but of American history, and they are unsung heroes. And for that, 
They are a part of our history books. When we come back, I'll give you more of our unsung heroes. And we're back. So we're talking unsung heroes of black history. This next group I'm going to talk about, you would have to go outside of America to learn about them. Particularly to go to the tiny island of Jamaica. This group I'm going to talk about is the Maroon Tribe. Or the Jamaican Maroons, who I'm a direct descendant of. But let's give a little backstory to find out exactly how these people came into being. During the heights of slavery, if you had a slave that was too strong of a worker to kill off, but too rebellious to control, you did one of two things with them. You called a man in the Caribbean by the name of Willie Lynch. That name should be very familiar because it has the word lynching in it. That's where the word lynching came from. Or lynch mob. He was one of the most diabolical and evil slave traders in the Caribbean. He was so respected because his methods were so simple but effective. They would call the slave owners here in North America would call Mr. Lynch if they had a problem, quote unquote, controlling their slaves. But when he found that those slaves were too rebellious to be controlled, they were sent to the Caribbean between Haiti, Cuba, and, of course, Jamaica. So, you have a bunch of people with a rebellious attitude that refuse to be broken, refuse to submit, refuse to be, to be, to be subjugated and enslaved, shackled and chained, because they know that they belong, they deserve to be freed. So a few of them decided that, you know what, enough is enough. Between the buck-breaking and the defilement of their women publicly, they all escaped and went deep into the mountains of Jamaica and were never recaptured. It was too difficult because, for one, they knew how to farm the land. Number two, because they went up into the mountains, they had the high ground. Hence, the formation of the Maroon tribe. To this day, those people, Maroon Town still exists and it has thrived where they do not recognize Western rule or Jamaican laws. They basically govern themselves. Surprisingly. But, Freedom didn't come that free because slavery, as we all know, was not abolished until 1834. In 1655, the British who invaded the island was trying to expand their trade of the sugarcane. The Jamaican Maroons that were on the island decided to fight back. They resisted the conquest and the first Maroon War had started. It lasted from 1728 to 1740, which the government ended by making treaty grants with the land of the Maroon anatomy. Basically, they couldn't beat these people with leaders like Nanny of the Maroons. You wouldn't know about her. 
she was the de facto leader of the Maroon tribe. It got to the point that they just said, you know what? We just got to leave them up there and let them starve. They'll come down. Well, that hasn't happened. And the Maroon tribe economy has thrived. In fact, since 1739, the Maroon tribe has flourished. And they, and they exist outside of Jamaican culture. And they've been up there ever since. The, the Honorable Connell Farrell Williams, he's the chief and elected leader of, their, of that society. <laughs> they do not recognize or even acknowledge Western rule. Basically, they are the personification of anarchy and living free. They are unsung heroes. Whether the Maroon tribe, whether it's the Maroon tribe in Haiti, the Maroon tribe in Cuba, or in Jamaica, the Maroon tribe are unsung heroes because they were the very few, the proud, the brave, that decided that I will not accept chains and shackles. I will not accept my women being defiled and my sons being subjugated. They decided that death is better than bondages. So they fought for every step of what they had. So with that being said, Maroon Tribe, I salute you, and I am proud to be one of your descendants. And you are Black History's, one of Black History's unsung heroes. When we come back, I'm going to talk about another one of Black History's heroes that you wouldn't think I would mention on this podcast. And we're back. So we are talking unsung heroes of black history. Now here's someone that the history books know who he is. But people within my age group and very few people know who he is or what he has done for black for the black community. House Representative John Lewis, 80 years old. He's the House Representative, the Democratic House Representative from Georgia's 5th District. He assumed office in January 3rd, 1987. He's been been around for quite some time. He was born February 21st, 1940. Happy belated birthday. He's 80 years old. I hope I'm blessed to see that age. He's originally from Troy, Alabama. He had a wife, Liliana Miles. Unfortunately, she passed in 2012. One child graduated from American Baptist College and Frisk University. So, why is he one of our unsung heroes? Well, I'll tell you. He was a part of a movement. He was a part of the civil rights movement. A key part of the civil rights movement that they don't really talk about. You hear about the Freedom Riders. You hear about Dr. King and what he did in the South during segregation for the bus strike. But you don't hear about this organization called SNCC, 
which stands for Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was the chairman. He was the third chairman of this committee from June 1963 to May 1966. The SNCC program basically trained the Freedom Riders how to do sit-ins and how to do marches. He was a big part of the Civil Rights Movement that really doesn't get much press. In fact, the SNCC organization didn't want to team up with Martin Luther King because they originally because they felt that they were doing all the heavy lifting in the South. And he was the face of the Civil Rights Movement. He was coming to get all the glory. Originally, they did not want to work with him. But eventually they did. Because I don't care what you say. I don't care what you feel. This is a little side note, ladies and gentlemen. If two groups are working towards the same goal, why not work together instead of just working apart? It makes more sense. A message is stronger if everyone's on the same page. But anyway, eventually those guys got it together by the grace of God. In Alabama, they had to deal with one of the most ruthless sheriffs of them all, Sheriff Rackham. And he made life hell for them. Every time you looked up, either they were being arrested, their hotels were being bombed, or anything, everything under the thing, anything under the sun. They were arrested and throw Senator Representative Lewis and his fellow SNCC members were arrested and thrown in prison to spend a week at in, in jail for, of course, civil disobedience because this was the Deep South during segregation, the Jim Crow era. And they were singing the national anthem while in jail. It was a tactic that Freedom Riders and SNCC members used to antagonize the guards. Ain't, no, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Or they would sing the Black National Anthem. <laughs> Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. This, drew, this drove the guards crazy. In fact, one of the guards, and this is the part of the story that I found so funny... One of the guards tried to threaten them and said, if you guys don't stop singing, I'm going to take your beds away. You know what Senator, what Representative Lewis and his other and his fellow freedom fighters, freedom riders did and SNCC members did? They threw the mattresses for their for their their particular cells against the gates and kept singing. And this drove them up the wall. That's exactly what I would have did. Eventually they were released. And they protested. And they had a way of. Standing in line. Waiting to vote. And they endured all kinds of indignities. And it's a shame that he was bleeped out of the history book. Mr. Lewis was bleeped out of the history books in that regard. But I had the pleasure of reading the book. March. Called Bart. It's a three-part book called March, based on what he went through and his fellow Freedom Riders. And at the end of the book, and this is a part that brought a tear to my eye, a tear of joy, I'm glad that he lived to see the first black president, Barack Hussein Obama, the 44th. And he got to see that what he fought for decades ago, everything that he went through, the concussions, the beatings, the bombings, the railroading, the blackballing, and all the bull. 
come to fruition. But with Obama becoming president, it showed that we still have a lot to do. It saddened me to to know that he has been struck with pancreatic cancer. He has my thoughts and my prayers. But you, sir, Mr. John Lewis, you are one of our unsung heroes. He's been awarded many honorary, many honorary um, diplomas and awards and degrees. He even so far has got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In December, in December 29th, 2009. Oh, sorry. That's when he, sorry, I'm getting um, my dates mixed up. That's when he announced that he has stage four pancreatic cancer. <sighs> but he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his civil rights activism. And the fact that he marched with Dr. King, he's actually a walking piece of history, a national treasure in my opinion. And sir, Mr. Lewis, if you hear this, you have my respect and my admiration. When we come back, I'll give you guys my final thoughts. And we're back. So here are my final thoughts. I would like to take this time to salute all our black heroes, both known and unknown. From the female soldier brigade that fought during World War II and has yet to be properly recognized, still fighting to be recognized. The Tuskegee Airmen, our civil rights activists, both known and unknown, the Freedom Riders and SNCC and and others, our inventors, known and unknown and our athletes that use their platform whether they be past, present or future to fight against injustice and racial equality with that being said the reason why I said I'm not going to talk too much about slavery because me personally slavery is not a part of black history slavery interrupted black history In fact, slavery was a ritual that we still, our society, still feels the effects of today. So that's why I didn't include slavery in this topic. Because black history does not start or begin with people, with our people as slaves. No, it doesn't. What what were we before that? We were kings, we were queens, we were farmers, we were inventors, we were warriors, we were fathers, we were sons, we were philosophers, we were scientists, we were architects. We were people that were made into slaves and have had to fight every step of the way and are still fighting. And it's sad that conversations that we had in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, we're still having them to this day. It's sad that every 30 seconds, a little girl, a little boy, is snatched off the streets. It's sad that so many of us have PTSD 
and we get no therapy. We get the penitentiary. It's really sad. But here's something I want to put in your ears. You cannot be a fan of Muhammad Ali. Rumble, boy, rumble. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. You cannot be a fan of Tommy Smith and Carl Lewis, who rose their fist in solidarity with the Black Power Movement, and hate Colin Kaepernick, and hate when athletes speak out against racial equality, and speak and by taking a knee, silent protest. You can't. You can't hate Muhammad Ali. You can't hate those guys that I just named. And be mad at Colin Kaepernick. It's a shame that these people that fight for their right or stand up for their rights, they have to wait till they're in the ground for to be vindicated in the history books. It's really sad. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense originally started to combat racial racial profiling and police brutality. And decades later, we're still dealing with racial profiling and police brutality. And we hear it every day in the news. People think this is new. It's not. What's new is social media. What's new is the cameras. But this is something that's been going on for decades to no end end in sight to white America black people are not dangerous black people don't hate you we hate racist white America systematic racism institutional racism that's what we hate and a question comes to me comes to imagine if racist white America learned to stop hating black people and love us as much as they love our inventions and our culture in fact modern society all over the world Imagine if they loved us as much as they loved our culture. Black people are the most emulated group of people on the planet. From the way we dance, the way we talk, even our version of what it is to be cool. Our styles, the trends we set, our music. Because believe it or not, rock and roll is black music as well as the blues, as well as gospel, and of course, hip-hop, which has risen to become America's official popular music. This watered-down version, but nevertheless. So instead of hating black people, instead of shaming black people for our culture, instead of stealing, consistently stealing from black culture, how about you say, you know what, thank you, black man. Because without you guys, my society would be very boring. And for you young people that hear this, black history isn't just a month. Black history is every day. Whether you're the first person in your family to go to college, your first person to graduate high school within your family, 
Black history is every day. And you are more than just athletes. You are more than just entertainers. You can be the next Drew Jarvis, the man who invented You can be that next Madam C.J. Walker, CEO of a company, self-made businesswoman like Oprah Winfrey, legally. You can be the next you. The path is there. Now, yes, you are going to face adversities, known and unknown, and that's okay, because you are descendant of a people that been to hell and back and still stood tall. So never let anyone make you feel inferior because of how you look and your background. It doesn't matter if you grew up on Park Ave or whether you grew up in the projects. It's all on you. So the next time you feel down and out, just remember, hey, I'm black. I can make it through anything, regardless of what society tells me. And it's a shame that black people are the only people on this planet where every other nation, every other race can live black people have to fight to exist it was just this week that the federal government officially declared that lynching someone is a federal offense imagine that and if and it's also amazing me that laws have to be passed for black people to be able to wear their natural hair to work the hair that comes out of their scalp sad right it's a shame that laws have to be passed for people that were born the way they were born just to exist and for you elitist black people this part of the story this is the part of my final thought for you elitists that feel that if you're too dark if you don't talk with slang terminologies you don't do this or do that it makes you less of a black person I say you are part of the problem black being black is not how you grew up or where you're from or how you dress or how you talk being black is what you are now I leave you guys with this if you were to meet me face to face just looking at me you wouldn't know my my religious beliefs unless I told you. You wouldn't know my sexuality unless I told you. You wouldn't know where I went to school, where I grew up. Anything about me unless I tell you that. The only thing I have been for 32 years of my life consistently, one, af- one day after the other, is a black man. If you didn't know, first thing you see when you see me is my skin tone it used to bother me when I was younger because I'm a lot darker than most people but once I realized where I was from once I was told where I was from you can tell me anything have you elitist black people 
that say that if you're not this way, you can't be black. If you're not this way, you can't be this. Half of you don't even know who you are. And it's not your fault. Because, once again, racism interrupted black history. Half the people, half the black people that are on this planet don't even know they're descendants of. It's not your fault. But, enough of that. Black history is not just a month. It's 365, 24-7. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, look out for my next episode. Until next time, rage against the machine, love, peace, and chicken grease. Deuces!